Should the international community suspend advocacy for human rights in favor of cooperation with odious regimes to fight the COVID-19 pandemic? This appears upon first glance like a trade-off. But our guests today make the case that they are not. In fact, robust human rights is fundamental to containing an infectious disease. We focus in particular on North Korea, whose human rights abuses are actually what makes the country more susceptible to COVID-19 than other countries. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan, social distancing from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. I'm Mark Tokola, the Vice President of KEI. We have two outstanding panelists with us today. First, Ambassador Robert King, who is a Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights and Humanitarian Assistance. We're proud to have him now as a KEI non-resident fellow. Ambassador King is literally irreplaceable. Uh, the Trump administration has not chosen to replace him. And if Ambassador King is irreplaceable, our other guest, Greg Scarlatu, is invaluable. He is the Executive Director of Human Rights North Korea, HRNK. The brand new State Department report on North Korean human rights that came out this month quoted six HRNK reports 13 times. His organization is one of the premier human rights organizations. So let me start the conversation with a question for Bob. Of course, we have to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. Shouldn't our focus be on healthcare in North Korea rather than human rights? It seems to me that we're in a situation where we can both walk and chew gum. We should be able to focus on the problem of healthcare in North Korea, which is a major issue and which is something we ought to be dealing with. But at the same time, it seems to me that we ought to be able to look at human rights and focus on human rights and give attention to that issue as well. I would argue that there's a connection between the two. One of the real problems in North Korea is lack of information, which is a human right. People in North Korea ought to be able to have access to information. And if they're going to have a good sense of the nature of the healthcare system and how to improve it, how to make it more functional, we need to have information about what's going on and that information needs to be available. Bob, if I can follow up with you, the UN Secretary General Guterres and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Mikhail Bakalet, have both called for a lifting of sanctions on North Korea to help North Korea deal with the pandemic. Sanctions are not either on or off. You can have sanctions lifted for certain areas or certain products or certain goods. And in fact, the UN sanctions specifically state that there should be an opportunity for healthcare and other kinds of things, a product and goods could be shipped into North Korea. So I'd argue, yeah, as far as healthcare, the items that are essential for healthcare in North Korea should be allowed to go in. And in fact, there are indications they are going in. The International Federation of the Red Cross, for example, was allowed to ship 10,000 training kits and other materials that are useful for the North Koreans in handling the COVID epidemic. But that doesn't mean we lift sanctions as well on nuclear and missile items that are helpful for the North Koreans. Greg, would you like to comment on that? Uh, Maybe you could also talk about the connection between North Korea's abuse of human rights and the pandemic. For example, are there conditions in prison camps that exacerbate the problem? Well, certainly here in the United States, the experts who drafted the sanctions were very careful to include humanitarian exceptions in those sanctions. The sanctions are certainly not meant to target the people of North Korea. The sanctions are meant to prevent the development and proliferation of North Korean nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles and to punish 
the elites in charge of their development and proliferation by severing their access to luxury goods imported from the outside world. As Ambassador King has pointed out, humanitarian organizations, including Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, or the International Federation of Red Crescent and Red Cross Societies, have already been granted exemptions. Certainly, I fully agree with Ambassador King that public health is a human rights issue in North Korea. The state of human security in North Korea has been terrible for the past 25 plus 30 years at the very least. The fact that food security in North Korea is a problem, the fact that the people of North Korea are food insecure, the fact that one third of North Korea's children suffer from malnutrition, from nutritional deficiencies, definitely increase the vulnerability of the people of North Korea to infectious disease. According to the late Hwang Jang-yop, the highest ever defector to come down to South Korea, this was the top ideologue of the North Korean regime. As many as 2 million people died in the Great Famine of the mid to the late 1990s. Not all of them died of starvation. Many of them died of disease induced by starvation because immune systems were certainly down due to immune deficiencies. What we're learning here in the United States and elsewhere in the developed world is that it's very important to be able to shelter in place. One needs the resources to hold the fort for a while. The very fact that the mobility is very strictly controlled and restricted in North Korea the very fact that food security and economic security are precarious, all of these mean that the people of North Korea are less prepared to deal with a public health crisis possibly triggered by the coronavirus. Speaking of detention facilities, our colleagues at Daily NK issued a couple of reports stating that respiratory infections have been reported at Kyohwaso forced labor camp number 12 in Chonggori, North Korea. We cannot tell whether this is COVID-19 coronavirus. Again, even compared to other people in North Korea, the human security of prisoners is so precarious. They've been suffering from respiratory infections uh, for a long time. At this stage, we just cannot tell. One argument that this organization, HRNK, has continued to make is that we need a rights up front approach to North Korea. If humanitarian organizations are involved in North Korea, they must remember to reach out to the most vulnerable. Who are the most vulnerable? Certainly people in detention, certainly those 120,000 political prisoners, including men, women, and children who are all detained together due to North Korea's Yonjaje system of guilt by association. Bob, I know you've been directly involved in negotiating North Korea on how to get assistance to them in back in the food assistance days. So if we do give medical supplies to North Korea and if they're willing to accept them, how can we make sure that they are used for the purpose they're intended for, not stockpiled or sold? This is one of the important issues that I think we need to consider when we're providing assistance to North Korea. When we were looking at the possibility of providing food aid at one point in 2011-2012, that was one of the things we had serious discussions with the North Koreans on, is how can we monitor to make sure the food is going to those that are most in need. 
I think it's essential that we do it as well with medical care. The rest of the world, that's one of the issues we do when we provide assistance. We assure that it goes to those that are most in need, make sure that it goes where it's intended. And requiring that of the North Koreans is not doing anything different for North Korea than we would do for any other country. We need to make clear that that's part of the process, that if we're going to provide humanitarian assistance, if we're going to provide medical aid, we need to be able to be sure that it's going to areas where the need is the greatest. And this is something that the North Koreans need to understand, and we need to be hard-nosed as we negotiate with them on those issues. But that ought to be an essential part of any agreement with the North Koreans on providing medical assistance. My colleague, Troy Stanger, made the interesting point, too, that we need to look at relative need. It may be their countries that actually are more of need of assistance than North Korea is. So it's a relative thing. If we can help North Korea, we should. But compared to other countries, is it the highest priority? Well, the North Koreans right now are claiming they have no cases of COVID virus. I suspect that that's not the case. Kim Jong-un is now building a brand new hospital in Pyongyang that's supposed to be finished by the fall. That seems to suggest that there are, in fact, expectations that the situation is either getting bad or going to get worse. And we need to be aware of that. Greg, you talked about North Korea's dealing with its population. But what is their record in delivering assistance to the population? I mean, I've seen it argued the North Korean healthcare system is actually pretty good, if under-resourced. They've got a lot of doctors. There are a lot of clinics. So is this massive North Korean state bureaucracy actually well-structured to deal with the pandemic? Mark, up until 30 years ago, the North Korean public health system may have been on par with the public health system of other communist countries. Of course, still corrupt, in some ways perhaps working I have my own personal story. In April 1986, I was a high school student in communist Romania. That's when Chernobyl happened. The regime of Nikolai Ceausescu, as terrible as it was, was able to distribute iodine pills to each and every school child at the time, as soon as they announced, of course, late, a few days late. However, for the past 30 years, the North Korean system the North Korean public health system has been in shambles. Resources have been concentrated on those areas that are regarded by the regime as critical to its own survival, the military, nuclear weapons, missiles, keeping the elites happy through access to goods imported from the outside world. The public health and the health security of the people of North Korea has been neglected. This is how the regime invests in the welfare and human security of the people of North Korea. There is no investment. Now, systemically, is this humongous bureaucracy equipped to deal with a public health crisis of the magnitude of a coronavirus crisis? One has to remember that the system is geared first and foremost to keep people under control. This is not a line of chain of command of technocrats who can make independent decisions within a world of technocrats. Party guidance trumps everything else. Doctors, hospitals, everyone. First and foremost, they must be obedient to the party, So they work under the strict surveillance of the party. They work under the strict surveillance of internal security agencies. While the system is 
equipped to keep people under control, oppressed, and maintain the regime in power, one tremendous vulnerability of this system is that for that very reason, it is not equipped to deal with a natural disaster or a public health crisis, a pandemic on par with what a coronavirus crisis could look like in North Korea. Bob, I was going to ask you about what effect the pandemic is having on North Korean defectors or or refugees. What can the U.S. do in regard to refugees in this time of border crossings? The refugees are probably very seriously affected by what's going on. Numbers have gone down last year or two. The numbers have declined significantly. My guess is it's much more difficult to get out of North Korea now than it was even a year ago. North Koreans are guarding the borders carefully. The Chinese are probably much tougher on the border than they were before. It's going to be much more difficult for them to get into China But then the other problem they will have is they've got to go through China to get out, in most cases, into Southeast Asia. And crossing China at a time when travel is being limited and travel is being carefully watched, I think the numbers of defectors leaving North Korea is likely to decline very significantly over the period of time, the three or four months that we've had when the pandemic has been going on. And I think that's going to continue. I am sure that those who are captured by North Korean guards or those who are repatriated from China back to North Korea are going to be more subject to conditions that would lead to their having problems and becoming ill with coronavirus. One question I've had myself is why North Korea won't admit to having any cases of COVID-19. They admit things in the past. They admitted having swine flu. They've admitted to floods and droughts. So why their secrecy about this case I've been wondering if it's just because they don't know what to do that until they have a plan where they can announce it and carry through with dealing with patients. Maybe they're afraid to admit they have it. Do you have any ideas about why they're not telling the truth about this? Well, uh, certainly, first and foremost, we will have to see whether North Korea is treating this as a real crisis or as a PR opportunity. We see that North Korean propaganda has issued instructions, uh, for example, not to gather in public spaces. They've admonished public officials who have been caught drinking, consuming alcohol during this crisis. So there is the PR aspect for it. The regime surely wants to look good. There is another aspect here. If a crisis does indeed happen, One has to remember that there are media organizations that even have stringers inside the country right now, contacting on a combination of smuggled Chinese cell phone and official North Korean cell phone. This is not the 1990s. If a crisis does happen, information will get out of the country. Now, by issuing all of these fatwas, so to say, all of these instructions, what the regime is trying to do is to position itself where it can say that it did try very hard to prevent this crisis. Now, indeed, on previous occasions, they did admit to droughts, to flooding, natural disasters. A little bit earlier, a few minutes ago, I quoted Huang Zhangyop. Huang Zhangyop was the one who also made this point in his memoirs. He said, South Koreans wonder why as North Koreans were dying by the hundreds of thousands and the millions, they did not rise up against the regime. 
The point that Hwang Jang-yeop made was that North Koreans in the 1990s did not regard this as a man-made disaster to a large extent, although there were floods and natural disasters, this was a disaster caused by the very regime of North Korea. For as long as they're dealing with an event that can be described as a, a natural disaster, the regime of North Korea does not regard it as potentially posing a direct threat to its legitimacy within North Korea. But of course, I hope that we will have more opportunities to discuss the potential effects of a coronavirus crisis on the North Korean regime, on the viability of the North Korean regime, on the future of the regime in North Korea. The reasons why they've kept quiet could be complex. The bottom line, of course, is that in order to determine how many cases there are out there, one has to test. We have no information about testing in North Korea. We know that North Korean statisticians are very good at doctoring data. They do not know their, their own statistical data. Of course, this is a huge obstacle in the way of collaborating with multilateral, bilateral international humanitarian agencies. This is a big obstacle in the way of collaborating with private humanitarian agencies that might be out there in North Korea. It seems to me that the legitimacy of the government is very much in question in terms of how it handles the coronavirus issue in North Korea. And that's true as well in the United States. I mean, even here where information is much more available, where people are paying attention, where things are known, there are efforts by our own government to keep the numbers down. Don't let the cruise ship land because it'll increase the number of people who are in the United States who have the virus. We're dealing with that in spades when you're dealing with North Korea, where the government has the ability to control the media much more so than is the case here. In light of the pandemic, is there anything we can do to force North Korea to properly care for the populations due to the global nature of the pandemic? That one's a tough one because we're not in a position to force North Korea to provide for its own citizens. This is an obligation that every state ought to have. It seems to me the best thing that we can do is to emphasize the responsibility of the government to take care of the well-being of its own citizens and focus on that element of it. Most other countries are very sensitive and very attentive about the well-being of their citizens. The North Koreans give very little attention to the well-being of the vast majority of their citizens. And the elite, of course, get very, very special attention. But I think what we've got to do is focus on the responsibility of a government to its own people and to their well-being. And this goes well beyond simply the pandemic. And I think that's where we start getting into the issue of human rights. If a government is concerned about the well-being of its people, it's not only their health, it's also the other aspects of the human rights, access to information, ability to make choices, freedom of movement, the other kinds of things that we talk about. Perhaps as shown by precedent, there isn't much we can do to force the Kim regime to look after its own people. One has to remember that globally we are dealing with a frightening, devastating force of nature. 
this coronavirus crisis will make many of us, even in the developed world, the world of constitutional republics or liberal democracies, perhaps change our perspectives on the world and change our way of life. As far as we know of now, we do not have a cure. We do not have a vaccine. The only way we can flatten the curve is by means of using behavior change campaigns. And of course, social distancing is one of the tools employed in the arsenal of dealing with COVID-19. Here's potentially a very big challenge for the North Korean regime. The North Korean regime fundamentally relies on collectivism. Collectivism and social distancing do not mix. Remember that this is a regime that relies on mass indoctrination of its own people. Of course, the regime might tell them, stop drinking soju and stop going to theaters. But what about the weekly Senghua Tonghua ideological training sessions? Will those stop as well? North Korea for more than seven decades has been all about people living together and everybody watching everybody else and everybody being subject to multiple lines of surveillance, coercion, control, surveillance, and punishment. Can this collectivism, collective surveillance, collective oppression, collective punishment survive a coronavirus crisis? None of us know the answer. Many still wonder how come how come the regime did not collapse in the 1990s? Again, zero cases, zero fatalities. Let's think of an absolutely potentially devastating scenario where perhaps almost half the population, 10 million, have been infected due to precarious hygiene, precarious public health. And let's assume a, a high fatality rate. What the World Health Organization is, is saying uh, right now is 2 to 4%, let's assume 5%. 5% of 10 million would be 500,000. That's how many people died in 1995 during the famine, according to Huang Zhangyop. According to the same Huang Zhangyop, 10% of them were party members, 50,000 of them. Well, if that did not bring down the regime. Does it mean that the regime is prepared to deal and cope with that type of tremendous loss? We just don't know. These are all questions that will be answered. But I think that the million dollar question, please excuse the cliche, is whether the collectivism preached by the North Korean regime can coexist with the type of behavior change that's needed in order to flatten the curve and avoid a catastrophic spread of the disease in North Korea. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Mark Tokola, Ambassador Robert King, Greg Scarlato, and to you listeners for tuning in. If you are an educator interested in hosting a webinar discussion with your class on North Korea or any topic related to the Korean Peninsula, please reach out to KEI. Our Director of Academic Affairs, Kyle Ferrier, can be reached at KF at keia.org. We'll be back next week with more commentary and analysis on the most important issues on the Korean Peninsula. Keep up the hand washing and see you then. <laughs>